I finally watched Booksmart. The one that your mom told us that we should see. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's yeah, on yeah. Hulu now. Oh. Yeah. What? So I finally watched it. It's so good. And I'm so mad at myself that I didn't go watch it in theaters. Because it's so fucking funny that I, like, cried. It was oh. it was so funny. I And very inappropriate. And great. Very inappropriate and very great. Alright. Yeah, because I was watching it in the same room as my brother. So... So definitely very inappropriate. I mean, he's a teenager. It doesn't matter. Yeah. But yeah, it was so good. And the acting was so amazing. Was it? Yeah. There's this scene where they like... They um, are dosed and they... um, Like the world turn... they, They like turn into dolls. They think that they're dolls. And it's just, it's great. They t- they turn into dolls. Yeah, like they um, they eat this stuff at a party. I think what are they? Yeah, they eat strawberries at a party. Oh, okay. And um, so like laced they, or something. Was, yeah, it was laced with. I think they said it was some sort of ayahuasca's. I don't. They um go to another party mm-hmm. and they start realizing that they are high and that they're starting to hallucinate and they both hallucinate that they're dolls and then they stand they like climb onto this vanity and they just start like oh wow and then one of them like takes off all of her clothes she's like i'm so smooth (laughs) it's it's great i can't it's it's really good and i'm now i've just ranted about Hey, I'm Rachel. And I'm Grace. Welcome back to the pod cast. <laughs> I was going to go for something. It didn't work. It's fine. You got to try it, you know. To the pod. Welcome to the pod. We're chill. So chill. We are Myths and Misfortunes. A paranormal and true crime podcast. And each week we pick somewhere in the world and base our stories on that place. And or... Not that place. <laughs> and or not that place. Yes. Or somewhere close. Because yeah, st- stories close, are close. harder to find than you think they are. Yeah. Yeah. They really are. You think like, oh, let me just type in like murder, Rome, or like haunted, paranormal, mythological, folklore. Oh, yeah. Those are all the things that I search for a place because I like, learned really fast not to search for true crime yeah. in a place because then you get just like crime. Yeah. You don't get like actual. <laughs> yeah. That's why Murderpedia can be good sometimes. Mm-hmm. Although sometimes they don't, 
really have, they don't have like the option to search for a specific place unless you use the Google custom search. Even then, it's um, a little bit iffy. I was gonna say, I, when I was using Murther, Murderpedia, mm-hmm. when I was using Murderpedia for, I think the last one I used Murderpedia on, I just did index by country and just mm. went through every person. <laughs> Yeah, no, I wouldn't. That's too much. I'm really lazy. I gotta do the easiest version possible. Gotcha. Gotcha, 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 gotcha. So anyway, uh, (laughs) this week, what are we doing, Rachel? Oh, uh, this week we are doing Rome, Italy. Yeah, like how she had to look at me to be like, we're doing this, right? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, um, so I've got the history section. It's funny because this is actually longer than my story. Um, <laughs> and it's a lot more complicated. I mean, it's so old. That's the problem I have with like places that are so old is that they have so much history. You have to pick very specific points and then mm-hmm. later on you have to like delete some, but then you can't delete too many cause then it doesn't make sense later. It's not fun. No, I know. Trust me, when I did Greece. Yeah, yeah. So we're just putting that on me this time. Yes. So, for Rome, the date generally given for the founding of Rome is 753 BCE. Ooh. Yes. Ooh. Very old. According to Roman legend, the city was founded by two brothers, Romulus and Remus. Gee, I wonder how they came up with Rome. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. <laughs> <laughs> they were supposedly the sons of the Roman god of war, Mars. When they were born, the king saw them as a threat to his crown and ordered that they be killed. They were put in the Tiber River to drown, but somehow survived. The legend goes that they were then found and raised by a she-wolf and grew to be strong leaders. They decided to lay the foundations for a new city at the exact place where they had been left to drown, and that's the city where Rome came to be. As they were building the city, the brothers began fighting over who would be the leader of the city. According to legend, or at least one version, Romulus killed Remus, and Romulus was left as the sole leader of the city, which took his name, Rome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Whew. This is a long... Long thing. Just get ready. Okay. <clears throat> so after it was founded, Rome was led by a succession of seven kings. During this time, its territory remained small, so its history wasn't as well known as later periods. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lucius Tarquinius Superbus. 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 The last king of Rome was overthrown, leading to the Roman Republic. The Roman Republic was an attempt at uh, ruling with not a single leader or monarchy, but monarchy, but by a more democratic form of government. Uh, the head of this government sat two consuls, who were elected every year by the people. The consuls were ultimately in charge, but each had the power to veto the other on any decision, meaning no one person held ultimate power. Mm-hmm. It was during this time that Rome began to expand and dominate the Mediterranean. Roman gladiator battles probably developed during this time. Gladiators fought for entertainment for large crowds. Um, they were often slaves and were treated quite poorly, even though they could reach great acclaim. It, wait, even though they could reach what? Reach great acclaim. Okay. Yes. 
The end of the Roman Republic and the beginning of the Roman Empire more or less coincides and has a lot to do with Julius Caesar. Caesar ran for consul of Rome and was elected and held a position for a year. After that, he went to Gaul. Gaul? G-A-U-L. Gaul. Gaul. That sounds right. Sure. Uh, Which was roughly the area of modern-day France, Belgium, and the Netherlands, and conquered a lot of territory. He also invaded Britain twice during this time, but was never successful in occupying it. When he returned to Rome with his army, he took over the city by force. He was declared the sole consul and dictator of Rome. Over the next few years, he made huge reforms to the city and republic, including land reforms and famously changing the calendar to include a leap year. Hmm. Yeah. However, many of the senators weren't happy, and 44 BCE, the senators, led by Cassius Longinus uh, (laughs) and Marcus Brutus, betrayed Caesar, killing him by stabbing him 23 times on the floor of the Roman Senate. Yes. She agrees. Oh, there you are. She's at my toes. So, this is the complicated part. Okay. Let's see if we can keep it straight. We can. No. After the death of Caesar, there was a struggle for power that lasted around 10 years. The struggle centered around Octavian, who later became Augustus, the first emperor of Rome. Brutus, Marcus, 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 Marcus. Brutus, Mark Antony, and Cleopatra. Um, There are more, but we're keeping this brief. Mm -hmm. After the death of Caesar, Octavian and Mark Antony defeated Brutus and took control of Rome. Mark Antony then married Octavian's cousin, but at the same time, he was having an affair with Cleopatra. Yeah. (sighs) Well. This may have strained the relationship between them even further. In 31 BCE, Octavian declared war on Mark Antony and Cleopatra, and they were forced to flee to Egypt, where they committed suicide. The death of Mark Antony and Cleopatra left Octavian as the sole ruler of the Roman Empire. In 27 BCE, he was given the title of Augustus, and he is now recognized as the first emperor of Rome. Rome initially continued to expand its territory, successfully invading Britain in 43 CE and occupying occupying, (laughs) occupying the region for close to 400 years. A few of the other notable periods of this time were the reign of Emperor Nero, who was considered by many to be eccentric and kind of mad. Um, He was the emperor of the Great Fire of Rome and Devastated City. Many blamed him and accused him of setting the city on fire, but it was never confirmed. Then there's the crisis of the 3rd century. During the 3rd century, the empire almost collapsed due to invasions, political instability, and economic depression. Oh. Yeah, it was during this time that the empire first began to show its vulnerability. A wall was constructed around Rome due to all the invasions, and emperors began to spend less and less time there. The splitting of the empire and establishment of Constantinople in 33 CE, Rome expanded greatly to the east, and so the emperor Constantine established a new capital, Constantinople, which is modern-day Istanbul. Constantine I is also generally considered the first Christian emperor of Rome, and he ended the long-standing persecution of Christians in the Roman Empire. His reign marked a turning point for Christianity, from which it would rise to dominate Europe and many other parts of the world. Hmm. Yeah. In 476 CE, Rome itself was invaded and fell. It's generally accepted as the date the empire fell. 
some of the reasons were succession of weak emperors that were ineffective, unfair taxation on many of the citizens, um, and then Rome became unable to raise its own army, probably due to the lack of loyalty, and well. could only protect itself by paying others for protection. Rome had always been the seat of the Pope. The Renaissance had primarily been based around and in Florence before moving its way to Rome. This is probably due to the Catholic Church wanting Rome to remain more grand and spectacular than any other city. Many of the famous artists and thinkers moved to Rome and some of its famous buildings were constructed, including St. Peter's Basilica, the Sistine Chapel, and the Piazza Navona. <laughs> Almost said Navana. Nirvana! Okay. <laughs> Nirvana and the Sistine Chapel. Rome eventually became part of the Kingdom of Italy. The Kingdom of Italy was declared in 1861, and by 1870, Italian troops invaded the city, and Rome became the new capital. The 20th century saw Rome and Italy endure through two world wars. Italy was on the side of the Allies during World War One. However, after the war, Italian fascism rose and the fascist leader Benito Mussolini became the new Italian prime minister. In 1922, he famously marched on Rome with his national fascist party, declaring a new Italian empire in alliance with Hitler and Nazi Germany. Italy then fought on the side of the Axis powers along with Germany and Japan during World War II. Rome suffered relatively little damage through the war. This is mainly due to there being no prolonged battle for the city. The Nazis occupied it briefly from 1943 to 1944, but withdrew quickly without much resistance. Since the war, Rome has continued to be one of the most important and popular cities in the world. In 1957, the Treaty of Rome saw the establishment of the European Economic Community and one of the pillars of the European Union. In 1960, Rome hosted the Olympics. Games and modern day Rome remains one of the most popular tourist destinations on earth with millions of visitors each year. And that was Rome. Ooh, ooh, Rome. So fucking long. I had a whole story before that, so it's like 15. Valid. So, I'm not gonna lie, I chose my story this week because I did think it was gonna be short. You didn't, or you did? I did. Oh, you did? I thought it was going to be short, because mm. the Wikipedia page mm. is really short, oh. but the Italian Wikipedia page... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was, um, that one was pretty long. So, my sources today... Oh, I'm so sorry. Um, I did it again. My sources were Wikipedia... And medium.com, the end. That's it? Yes. Okay. My sources are Wikipedia, strangeco.blogspot.com, reddit.com. Sorry. I was writing down say the fucking sources. <laughs> okay. Reddit.com, bizarreandgrotesque.com. <laughs> Bizarre and grotesque. Mm-hmm. Encyclopedia.com and press.uchicago.edu. All right. So, Wilma Montesi was born in 1932. She came from a modest background and was described by her family as extremely shy and reserved. Is this our first female killer? No. I'm oh. sorry, no. Darn. Okay. 
She was a very attractive young woman and had dreams of becoming a movie star. Oh. Despite her lower-class status, she and her sister Wanda did enjoy little luxuries such as American makeup, American perfume, and expensive clothes. So, Wilma was engaged to marry a policeman by the name of Angelo Giliano on Christmas the following year. While one would assume that you should love and trust the person you are marrying, apparently some family and friends feel that Wilma was unsatisfied and thought of her fiancé to be a jealous person. So in the early afternoon of April 9th, 1953, Wilma's mother and sister decided to go to the cinema. They invited Wilma to go with them, However, she declined because she apparently did not like the actress who was starring in the movie. No, I mean, valid. Yeah, I mean, very valid, yeah. Between 5 and 5.30 p.m., Wilma is seen leaving the family home, dressed very nicely, as if she were meeting up with someone. She is said to have been carrying her purse with her. However, she left her ID card at home. She was also not seen wearing the jewelry that her fiancé had gifted her. This was only odd because she apparently never took it off. Oh. It is speculated that she was headed towards the San Paolo train station, although her family claimed that she had no knowledge of public transport. The train leaves the station at 5.30 p.m. for Ostia, and several witnesses claim to have seen Wilma aboard. They all said that she was alone and looked very calm. There were also several sightings of her at a cafe. You okay? No, it just sounded kind of familiar. I was wondering if I know it. <laughs> oh, you may- maybe. In fact, an owner of a kiosk on Ostia's beach claimed to have talked to a woman who looked very similar to Wilma. She was buying a postcard that she said she wanted to send to her fiancé. Uh... Yeah, that's something I I didn't mention before. Woman and her fiancé would send postcards back and forth. Okay, I was like, damn, she was leaving him, being like, <laughs> bye. <laughs> At 7 p.m., her mother and sister arrive home. Come 9 p.m., they begin to worry because Wilma hasn't made it home for dinner. At 10.30, the family makes a trip to the hospital in order to check and see if Wilma had gone there. Okay. Because she suddenly felt ill. When she wasn't there, her parents immediately went to the police. Sounds like she went around the city, like, a lot that day. Yeah, really. On the morning of April 11th, a laborer who was having breakfast on the beach stumbled upon the dead body of a woman laying face down in the coming waves. He made a note that she did not appear to have been dead for very long. Honestly, I don't know what made him come to this conclusion. Maybe she was she didn't look blue. Maybe. Or maybe she just wasn't I mean, you know when body's been in water for a long time. Bloated, yeah. Okay. Um she was found without her shoes, skirt, stockings garter belt, Mm. or purse. One source said that she wasn't wearing her jacket, but that it was placed over her shoulders. Oh. 
When the description of the dead woman was put into the newspaper, her father was able to recognize that this was his missing daughter. Oh. While identifying her had been easy, determining the reason for her death was more complicated. There were no drugs or alcohol in her system, and an autopsy found only ice cream in her stomach. Okay. Despite what her missing clothes may have suggested, there were no signs that Wilma had been sexually assaulted prior to her death. Huh. And in fact, the doctors claimed that she was still a virgin. Uh, okay. As a side note. <laughs> um, yes, I'm very glad you're going. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure there's really no way of determining virginity. Well, determining virginity is a really big thing in certain countries and but also if virginity is a construct people yeah it's a man-made construct. the the construct of the hymen being broken yeah that's not you can ride a bike yeah and it can break your hymen or you know ride a, a horse yeah a horse or most women using tampons. And it doesn't really break. It just, it tears and then it heals. It heals. Yeah, exactly. Anyway. Moving yes. on. <laughs> However, in, in this case, I guess it, it does make sense if, um... It wasn't a f- fresh... F- if, if she had been, like, forcibly um sexually assaulted then yeah there would have been sign of it and yeah yeah but they were there was no sign of it the only thing they noted that there that there was sand mm-hmm. from um from the beach w- in inside because yeah. i mean if you're beach. on a beach beach yeah it happens especially if she's been in the water for a while yes. or a little bit yes and on top of that there was water and sand found in her lungs oh. that could be traced back to Capacota, which is a beach that was just south of Austria. Huh. Ultimately, the police ruled this as a suicide, of course. <laughs> However, Wilma's family insisted this is not the case and that she had never been suicidal. I... If I was suicidal, why would I take off my skirt? Exactly. Okay. You know what? People do weird things. People do weird things. Yeah. A second theory is that Wilma had gone to the beach in order to soak her feet. Uh Uh-huh. She had eczema on her heels Mm -hmm. that she would occasionally, you know, soak, walk on the beach in order to help. Yeah, yeah. Take care of that. Yeah, sea salt and all that shit. Yeah, yeah. She had removed her shoes, stockings, and skirt and waded into the water when she fainted due to a dramatic fall in blood pressure. Okay. They attribute this to the fact that she was menstruating. Uh, um, Yeah. So... She was? That's what they said. (laughs) Well, doesn't it just make much more sense that somebody was attempting to sexually assault her, saw that she was on her period and was like, nah, and then killed her? I don't know. I'm gonna continue. Okay, sorry. <laughs> it's okay. She she landed face first into the water and then drowned. 
She was washed out by the sea and drifted to where her body was eventually found. However, the police could not fully rule out homicide. On May 4th, the newspaper Roma claimed that Wilma had been murdered and that the police were covering it up. Ooh. This was published again by the magazine Vionove, I think. Sure. In- <laughs> yeah. That stated that a jazz musician by the name of Piero Picciani had handed in Wilma's missing clothing to the police. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Picciani was also the son of Italy's deputy prime minister. Ah. Attilia Picciani. So, this obviously sparked a lot of controversy. Understandably, he sued the journalist who wrote the article and the magazine's editor. Even under interrogation, the journalist did not disclose his sources. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Wilma's death was then seemingly forgotten about until October 6th, 1953, when another journalist by the name of Silvano Muccio published claims that Wilma had been a guest at a wild sex and drugs party. Okay. <laughs> that was attended by many of Rome's elite, including that of Piero Piccioni mm. and actress Andriana Bisacchia. Is that that one actress that she didn't like? I don't know. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> According to his story... The Muccio guy, Wilma died of a drug overdose at the orgy. The fellow partygoers who wanted to distance themselves from the death secretly dumped her body on the beach. Wow. Piccioni then also sued Muccio and the actress Bisacchia, however you pronounce it, denied this tall tale of his. However, another actress came out of the woodworks. Oh. And confirmed Mutio's story to be well, true. That, but it can't be true. Mm-hmm. She had water in her lungs, and if she had died over and over to she would have already been dead by the time they dumped her in the water. Hold on. Okay, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> she said that not only was Mutio's story true, but that Wilma had been the mistress of Hugo Montagna. The man who had allegedly hosted the party, that was her demise. Oh. Now, the reason that he was claiming that she died of a drug overdose was that she was merely unconscious because of the drug overdose. Oh. And that the party goers staged it. Okay. And she was, you know, she was unconscious, so they either laid her face down in the water, and then she drowned. Or they assumed that she was dead and just... Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, back on topic. Montagna was a wealthy Sicilian with an extremely shady past, but he also held great political influence. Of course. Another starlet named Anna Caglio came forward as well. She accused Montagna of running an extensive network of dope peddling and sex trafficking. Oh. And Piccioni, according to her stories, was his chief assassin. Oh. Maria, who was the first actress who came up and said that this this whole story was true. Yeah. 
wrote up a memorandum that confirmed the findings in Lucio's article. And this document was then given to an Italian official who then suspended the trial against Muccio. Huh. So, you know, they were no longer... Yeah. He couldn't be sued anymore. So, on March 26, 1954, the investigation into Wilma's death, death was reopened. Oh, good. The Christian Democrats, which were the political party that the Piccionis belonged to... Mm-hmm claimed that this scandal was nothing but a conspiracy that was orchestrated by their political enemies. Okay. Nevertheless, the controversy led to Attilio Piccioni's resignation. Mm. Piero Piccioni and Hugo Montagna were arrested in Pic- I think it's Matagna. Never mind. Huh? I was going to say Matagna? You know what? Yeah. Matagna. It's fine. Piero Piccioni... And you go, Montagna, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Don't be sorry, he might be a bad guy. <laughs> True. We're arrested, and Piccioni went on trial for manslaughter. Oh, wow. While Montagna was accused of helping him to get rid of the body. Hmm. While the press was arguing that these two be put away, Wilma's family thought that the man was innocent. They believed that their daughter was the last person on earth who would be involved in drugs and casual sex. <sighs> However, they knew there was a side to Wilma that was considered shocking at the time. Wilma liked to smoke cigarettes and stay out super late. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently that's shocking. But, I mean, you know. at that time, probably. However, as the case went on, this theory about Wilma dying from drug overdose seemed... Uh, a lot less far-fetched. Right. On May 28th, 1957, both Piero Piccioni and Hugo Montagna were found innocent of their charges. Come on. And acquitted. Why? Mm. Montagna declined ever knowing Wilma, while Piccioni had a proven alibi during the time of Wilma's death. As far as authorities are concerned, the accidental drowning theory was still the truth. While Wilma may have drowned accidentally, this case certainly helped the paparazzi. They had their stories left and right with this, and more and more people um, kept coming out with stories regarding mm. the case. So, you know, that's that's my story. That's it? There's that's no it. ending? There's no ending. This that's so frustrating. This isn't solved. Yeah. I, no, I know. I... And there was, I mean, there was, there was a lot more, but it was a lot of conspiracy theories and political. I could have gone into conspiracy theories, but that's fine. I mean, I touched on the conspiracy theories. That's so weird. What do you think happened? I don't think it's as far-fetched as they think that it could have been a drug thing. Yeah. I mean... Everything that I was reading said that she may or may not have been unhappy with her husband, mm-hmm. or soon-to-be husband. So oh, did they even investigate the husband? They did not. Huh. And if that's the case, and she was the type of person to, you know, go out and party, despite mm-hmm. what her parents might think, then it wouldn't be too far off if she did go to a casual sex party. But why did she... 
leave her ID and her jewelry at home. Because she didn't need it. If she was going to a party, she was said to be extremely attractive. So, if you think about it, if you go to parties and the extremely attractive women always tend to get free drinks. Oh, that's, I guess that's true. So, I mean, she didn't need her ID and they said that there was ice cream in her stomach. Maybe it was an ice cream party. And mm. <laughs> ice cream and drugs go very well together. Yes. Now, the only thing that does kind of concern me is that they said there were no drugs in her system. Oh, did they? Mm-hmm. Mm. Or alcohol. So mm. then my thought is... If they were doing drugs, maybe it was a drug that hadn't been found yet. Maybe one, yeah, one they didn't test for. Yeah. Yeah. So, especially if you, I mean, it was a party with all these political people. You you know, drugs were involved. Hmm. It, it, it's not impossible. And there was nothing like, um, no, like, marks anywhere on her body, just... Mm-mm. That's crazy. Mm-mm. Yeah. That's frustrating. So, as much as I would like to to think for the family's sake that it was just an accident, accidental drowning, why would Picioni have brought her clothes in? Right. How would he have her clothes? Yeah. And on top of that, like, why... And if, if she didn't, if none of that happened, I can't imagine you would take off your skirt at a yeah. public beach. Yeah. Or your garter. Or your garter. Or even if you did, like... That's just so weird. Yeah. I mean, this definitely one of the more interesting unsolved that doesn't have a lot of information. Okay. So, what's your story? My sources. I'll tell you what it is. I'm so proud of you. I know. I wrote in giant bold letters, say the sources. So my sources are Wikipedia, Atlas Obscura, Amy's Crypt. uh, I love Amy's Crypt. (laughs) Catholicism.org, Ranker, Tradition and Action, and Aletia.org. I don't know. Uh, A-L-E-T-E-I-A. Aletia? Sure. Alright, so, my story is about this itty-bitty little museum. I say museum with air quotes. (laughs) (laughs) It's called the Museum of the Souls of Purgatory. Oh! Yes. It took me a really long time to find this. I looked at so many different things, I was like, Let's do some mythological creatures. Let's do something. Some hauntings. I don't know. I was even going to do maybe something on uh, the mirrors, uh, which are like revenants, Mm -hmm. kind of. And I even read this 84-page thesis that somebody wrote. I read most of it. Oh, my God. It's like this thesis about the difference between uh, Lemire's and um, all just different versions of, like, revenants in Italy and mm-hmm. Rome. It was just a long thing. <laughs> Instead, I found this, and I was like, this is short and easy, and I've got, like, a couple hours today and tomorrow to do this. So, here's what we're doing. Okay. Yeah. 
Okay, I did not look up how to say any of this stuff. Not confident. We're going for it. So, two opposite statements there. It's fine. It's okay. I said Matogna instead of Matonia. <laughs> it's fine. In 1897, in a chapel of the Chiesa del Sacro Cuore del Suffragio, a chapel dedicated to Our Lady of the Rosary, there's a painting of Our Lady of the Rosary that caught fire due to the candles all around it. Ooh. The priest, Victor Jouet, and bystanders saw on the wall behind the painting the image of a human face bearing a sad and melancholy, melancholy expression impressed by the flames. Well, that's disturbing. Yes. He believed that it was the soul of a deceased man condemned to purgatory who had tried to get in contact with the living. Hmm. So, according to the to Catholic belief, the soul is stranded in purgatory until they atone for their sins, but can be sent to heaven through the prayers of loved ones still on earth. The scorched handprints and other burn marks in this uh, collected in the museum are believed to be the product of souls begging their earthbound loved ones to pray harder so they can go to heaven. Oh, that reminds me of... I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> that reminds me of an episode of Ghost Hunters from, like, a while ago uh -huh. when they had the thermal camera and then suddenly you just see a handprint mm. showing up on the wall. Mm -mm. <laughs> it was the coolest thing no, ever. thanks. Ew. But that's basically what a lot of this yeah. is. So the freeing of these trapped souls became a priority for the church and for family member members grieving dead loved ones which is why November 2nd was established as All Souls Day, mm -hmm. wherein it was believed that prayers by the living could intercede on behalf of the faithful uh, dead who had died without absolution or babies who had died before baptism, freeing them for heaven. Yeah. Apparently, according to Catholic doctrine, one cannot go to hell from purgatory. So you're just stuck in purgatory? So you're stuck there until you atone for your sins and go to heaven. Cool. If you don't, then you're stuck, so... Better purgatory than hell, I guess. Anyway, that specific occurrence of that uh, painting burning and the face being burned into the wall convinced Victor Jouet that he needed to find proof that purgatory exists. Mm -hmm. With the support of Pope St. Pius X, Jouet traveled through Belgium, France, Germany, 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 wow, Germany and Italy, collecting money for the church and also collecting these relics, proof of the existence of purgatory. Mm -hmm. The small museum officially opened to the public the same year that the church itself opened for worship in 1917. Um, Jouet's successor, successor um, Gila Fun name, huh? Gila Grimigny. Gila Gramigny closed the museum in 1920, supposedly to give him enough time to authenticate the pieces. It remained shut for 30 years. Yep. In the 1990s, there was a discussion at the Vatican about closing the museum, because in view of the new theology that had triumphed since the Vatican II, many Vatican theologians uh, deny the teachings of, uh, the teaching that purgatory is a physical place of suffering. Really? Yeah. Okay. So. It's current, the museum's currently open, though. So. Oh, okay. The featured objects include books, tabletops, articles of clothing with burn marks, and some of them in shape in the ha of hands. Mm-hmm. Um, Jouette 
apparently died in the museum in 1912, and nothing has been added to it since. Yes. So it's like, also probably museum. haunted. Oh, probably. <laughs> um, the museum's collection, is it, like, it's so small, it is one room. R- what? It's one room. So it could be a traveling collection if they really wanted it to. If they really wanted to, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Most people who visit Rome have never even heard of it. And you have to, when you go to the church, you have to ask to see Il Museo and you'll be guided to the small room. Mm-hmm. Photography is allowed, but it's difficult because of the reflections of the glass display uh, create, like... Reflection. <sighs> yeah. Yes. Light. Light reflection. Yes. Besides the original scorched image on the wall of suffering, of the suffering soul in purgatory, the collection includes three fingerprints on the prayer book of Maria Zaganti, left by her friend who had died, named Palmira Rastelli, on... March 5th, 1871, Palmira Rostelli, who had died on 28th of December, 1970, asked for her, for Maria, to tell Palmira's brother, who was a priest, to hold holy mass for her so that she can get into heaven. Mm -hmm. Another one. uh, In 1875, the apparition of Louisa... (laughs) I cannot say this. Uh, Louisa Le Seneschal? Shit, I'm so sorry. Sure. Uh, <laughs> sure, we'll go with that. Who had died two years earlier, appeared to her husband, Luigi, in their house, asking him to pray for her, leaving a burnt handprint on his nightcap. According to the document authenticating the apparition, the burn on the nightcap was proof that the husband could use to convince their daughter of the request to celebrate Mass. Okay. So, there's a photocopy of this one. Because um, the original is kept at Winnenberg near Warndorf in Westphalia in Germany. Um, okay. It's a burn mark made on the apr- apron of this sister of the monastery in Winnenberg uh, by the hand of the deceased Mary Kerr Schollers, who was a choir sister of the same order who died of the plague in 1637. Aww. Yeah. The lower part of the photocopy shows the impression of two hands made by the sister on a strip of linen. There is a photo of the mark made by the deceased Miss Lele. Lux? 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 L-E-L-E-U-X. Lele? Sure. On the sleeve of her son, Joseph's shirt, when she appeared to him on the night of June 21st, 1789, in Belgium. The son said for 11 consecutive nights, he had heard noises which made almost made him sick with fear. At the end of those 11 days, his mother appeared to him, reminding him of his duty of to have mass in compliance with the terms of an agreement he had with his father. And she basically chided him for his way of life and begged him to change his behavior and to work for the church mothering him even after yeah. death. <laughs> she put her hand on the sleeve of his shirt, leaving on it a very clear impression. He was then converted and found even founded a congregation. Oh, good for him. Uh, there's a fingerprint left by Sister Mary of St. Luigi Gonzaga when she appeared to Sister Margaret of the Sacred Heart on the night between the 5th and 6th of June in 1894. As recorded in the Annals of the monastery of St. Clair of the child of <laughs> the child Jesus in Bastia. Mary suffered from tuberculosis, high temperature, coughs, and asthma, and was so depressed that she wished greatly to die so as to not endure such suffering. 
being a very fervent soul, however, she resigned herself to God's will. She died a holy death a few days later, on the morning of June 5th, 1894. That same night, she appeared dressed as a poor nun in hazy atmosphere, but Sister Margaret still recognized her. The deceased nun says that she was in says said <laughs> that she was in purgatory to pay for her lack of patience in accepting God's will. She asked for prayers uh, and as proof of her apparition, she placed her forefinger on the pillow and promised to return. She did reappear again to the same nun on June 20th and the 25th to thank her and give spiritual advice to the community before she went up to heaven. Okay. Yes. There are marks left on a small wooden table and on the sleeve of a nightdress of a of the Mother Isabella Fornari, abbess of the Poor Clares of the Monastery of St. Francis in Todi. The four marks were left by the deceased priest Panzini, a former abbot. Panzini the Panini. Panzini the Panini. Former abbot Olivetano of Mantua on the 1st of November, 1731. The first mark is on the left hand, impressed on the table, which Mother Isabella used for her work. It's very clear and bears a sign of a cross cut deeply into the wood. The second is of the same left hand made on the sheet of paper. The third is of the right hand and was made on the sleeve of the abbess's tunic. The fourth is on the same, uh, is the same made on the tunic, but that passed through the tunic and left an imprint on the sleeve of that nightdress. Okay. It was also stained with blood. Oh, yes. wonderful. The account of this was given by um, Isidoro Gazada of the Blessed Crucifix, the confessor of the abbess. He ordered her to cut, off from her, cut it off from her tunic and nightdress, the parts where the marks were made mm -hmm. um and to give to the, him to keep which yeah yeah mm. <laughs> yeah there's also a mark that was left on the copy of a book the imitation of christ belonging to marguerite de Merlet of ellingen parish sure by her mother-in-law who appeared to her in 1815 30 years after her death in 1785 Oh. Yes. The mother-in-law appeared dressed as a pilgrim in the traditional costume of her costume, in their traditional outfit of her country. Mm -hmm. um, she was coming down the stairs of the barn, sighing and looking at her daughter-in-law, almost as if begging for something. Marguerite um, spoke to her and received the following answer. I'm your mother-in-law who died in childbirth 30 years ago. Go on a pilgrimage to the shrine of Our Lady of Mariental, and have two masses said there for me. After the pilgrimage, she appeared again to Marguerite to tell her that she had been released from purgatory. When her daughter-in-law, on the vice of a parish priest, asked her for a sign, she put her hand on the book and left a barn mark. Okay. All right, only two more. All right. There are fire fing fiery fingerprints by the deceased Joseph Schitt's. <laughs> wonderful last name there sir <laughs> all right her fire finger fiery fingerprints by the deceased joseph schitz when he touched his right hand to a german prayer book of his brother george on 21st of december 1838 in lorraine 
the deceased man asked for a prayer because of his lack of piety during his life on Earth. Mm-hmm. And the last one is a photo- photocopy of um, Italian money. Yeah, I know. Between money? the 18th of August and 9th of November 1919, a total of 13, of 30 um, notes, such like the banknotes, mm-hmm. were left at the Monastery of St. Leonardo in Montefalco by a deceased priest who asked for masses to be said for him. People think it was a bribe so he could get into heaven faster, so he could just avoid purgatory. I don't know. Um, the original of this note has been returned to the Monastery of St. Leonardo, where it's still kept. I don't know if that really proves the existence of purgatory, but it's certainly interesting. That was definitely interesting. That, um... Yeah. Certain parts of it were very wordy, but, um... Some parts were interesting. And that's my story of the Museum of the Souls of Purgatory. I feel like more research could be done on purgatory. I, yeah, I was like, like, I wanted to go, like, find more about it, but I literally had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, yeah, seven sources, and that's all that I could find. Mm-hmm. And well, I mean, just purgatory in general, not yeah. That I want, that's what I'm saying. I wanted to go like more into it, and I couldn't find a way to make it, make it really like connect with how I wrote it. So I like, well, oh, that's okay. All right. Well, that was okay. Um, that's it. Awesome. <laughs> so you can. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Myths and Misfortunes or Twitter at Myths Misfortune. Or you can search for us using our full name, Myths and Misfortunes. We do pop up. You can also send us an email to mythsandmisfortunes at gmail.com. Our music was composed by McKean Fulbright and our art was created by Heather Marie Atkins. Their websites can be found in the description below. We would appreciate rating, reviewing, subscribing, all that stuff. All that fun stuff, please, and thank you. Yes. And thanks so much for listening, guys. Yes, yes. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.